0: This issue of Nil Desperandum is rated PG for Occasional Strong Language. Nil Desperandum 16, Memories of Childhood by D. Thomas Minton. D. Thomas Minton resides in Hawaii with his wife, daughter, and three and three-quarter cats. Apparently, one of them has only three legs. Writing is his first passion, but since it does not pay the bills, he moonlights as a marine biologist and prefers to spend his workday underwater. His fiction has appeared in OG's Speculative Fiction and Cosma magazine, and he was recently a finalist in the Writers of the Future contest. Our narrator is Ricky Robinson. You can find him on the web at MordentWorld.com. Or at Bearcrawling.com.
1: Memories of Childhood by D. Thomas Minton. All right, all right," said Margie, waving her hands for silence. Enough war on terror talk. The four of us had finished several bottles of wine, and her face glowed flush in the soft lamplight. I felt a little light-headed myself and incredibly horny. From where she sat at the end of the couch, she pushed against my thigh with her toes. It was driving me crazy. "'What is your earliest memory of childhood?' Margie asked when she had our attention. "'I can remember being born,' Julian said. Diana hit him playfully with a throw pillow. "'I'm serious,' Margie said. "'What's the earliest thing you can remember?' "'Is this some sort of Cosmo thing to find out how sensitive your lover is?' Margie fixed Julian with her don't-try-me stare. Julian smirked at her. I remember a carnival, I said, hoping to diffuse any argument between Julian and my fiancé. I was three, maybe four. I got separated from my parents. It was probably only a few minutes, but it seemed like hours before my mother. Margie sat up straighter. What is it, Rob? I went to that carnival every year until I left for college. I shook my head and squeezed her foot, hoping to reassure her that everything was okay. But it wasn't. How many times had I been to that carnival? Enough that I should remember its name or where it was held. But I couldn't remember. That's not what bothered me the most, however. It was the thought of my mother. We hadn't spoken since I had moved away immediately after graduating from college. I hadn't thought about her in nearly as long. My memory of our last fight was hazy, but we had exchanged harsh, even cruel barbs. She had gone so far as to wish me dead. It proved to be the piece de resistance— of the tough years that followed my father's death in September of 2001. Thankfully, the conversation had moved away from me, and no one seemed to notice the frown on my face or my silence. I tried to shake off the disconcerting feeling, but it stayed with me the rest of the night. Later, after Julian and Diana had left and Margie had drifted off to sleep, I dug at my memories and found other holes. I couldn't remember the name of my high school or my first girlfriend's last name, and what did my dad do for a living? Blank. I remembered him coming home late every night. On Thursdays, we would go for pizza with sausage and mushrooms from Gino's pizzeria. But what did he do for a living? I must have been drunker than I realized. I slid from beneath the comforter. Margie groaned, but rolled over without waking. My head hurt, so I took a handful of aspirin and drank a liter of water. I smiled, realizing I had been thinking about several blowout pledge parties from my fraternity days. But when I couldn't recall the names of any of my frat brothers or even the name of my fraternity, my stomach began to hurt. I pulled a shoebox of old photos down from the shelf in the hall closet. It held about a dozen prints that I hadn't looked at in six or seven years. I sat on the couch, flipping through them one by one. With each picture, my stomach tightened more. The pictures were generic, me surrounded by buildings or trees, maybe some water in the background, sometimes a nondescript beach, other times a lake. I was alone in every photo, and I could find no distinguishing landmarks in their background. They had no date stamps, but based on my age and them, I was in college. At times, a photo would trigger a general memory of going to Fire Island or down to the city, but never anything specific about the photo itself, why it had been taken, by whom, or where. I tossed the pictures back into the box. I noticed something odd about one of them. It was thicker than the other photos, and when I thumbed the edge, I realized it was two prints stuck together. I couldn't get them apart without tearing the bottom one, so I used a thin-bladed knife from the kitchen to pry them apart. It took me half an hour to do it without damaging the bottom picture. The second photo was of me with a dark-haired woman. I was hugging her from behind, my head over her shoulder. She canted her head slightly to the side, looking towards me. The picture captured one of those intimate moments between two people that only comes with time and shared experience. Lots of shared experience. The problem? I had never seen her before. I hid the photo in my coat pocket, and before Margie awoke, I made an appointment to see a doctor that afternoon. While Margie attended her weekly Saturday lunch with her mom, I saw Dr. Avery. He was dutifully concerned when I described my inability to remember things from my childhood. I showed him the picture of the dark-haired woman and explained that I didn't know her. I could hear the panic in my voice, but I'm not sure that he could. He asked about stress at work, whether I was taking any medication or other drugs, and if I had been feeling depressed. He ordered a blood workup, stress-physical and scheduled me for a CAT scan on Tuesday afternoon. For the next few nights, after Margie had drifted off to sleep, I spent hours on the internet trying to self-diagnose my condition. I learned a lot of things caused memory loss. Discouraged, I gave up reading medical websites. Besides, I realized that my pattern of memory loss was unusual, and nothing I had read seemed to explain it. My memory holes were always subtle. For each incongruity, a logical explanation always existed to explain why I had never noticed it. At my age, who talked about high school? From what I could remember, I had grown up in a small town whose name few people would recognize, so when asked, I always said I was from near Poughkeepsie. I never called home, so I had no reason to think about my mother's phone number, which you would think I would remember, but couldn't. It was as if memories had been selectively removed. I began to suspect that my condition had been planned and executed with precision. In a time of dirty bombs, IEDs, radical fringe elements, and an overprotective government, who knew what was possible? Three days after my CAT scan, Dr. Avery called me at work. He could find nothing wrong but told me to come back if I noticed anything new. Without a word, I hung up and turned my attention back to the photo taped to my computer monitor. I spent more time each day staring at the photo of the man who looked like me and the dark-haired woman. I refused to acknowledge that Photo Man was me. To do so would be to admit something wrong, something sordid. I did look for and find a small mole on Photoman's cheek. It matched the one beneath my right eye. I lost count of the number of times I scanned the woman's face with a magnifying glass, searching for clues. She looked like a well-to-do Northeast type, one who came from money, but not too much money. Perhaps she was the daughter of a moderately successful lawyer or maybe a dentist. Sometimes two hours would pass before I'd snap out of my trance, feeling guilty. It was like I had hired a private investigator to photograph my cheating spouse, but it turned out I was the adulterer. I knew this didn't make any sense, but the existence of the photo made it real, and the fact that I hadn't shown it to Margie made it illicit. What could I say to her? That's not me when it looks so much like me that even I thought it was. Telling her that I'd never seen this woman before seemed like an excuse a 12-year-old boy made when his mom finds a stash of well-fingered playboy stuffed between his mattresses. One evening, I sat watching the latest terror update on television. Margie sat at the other end of the sofa reading a book, her feet curled beneath her. The latest news on Frank Dorian washed over me, barely registering. Dorian had been convicted seven years ago under the material support statutes for aiding terror groups in a series of attacks going all the way back to the World Trade Center. A ruling on his final appeal was due any day. I wasn't sure why, but I had followed the case from its start. Tonight, like many nights recently, I couldn't focus on it. Out of the corner of my eye, I noticed Margie glanced at me around the side of her book. In the last few weeks, her furtive but concerned looks had increased. While we ate dinner in quiet as we drove to visit her mother, or in bed as we lay together, not touching. No matter how much I assured her everything was okay, I know she sensed something was wrong. I had tried to tell Margie earlier that day about the woman in the photo, but the words never came, so I bought her a half dozen roses. Her foot pushed against my thigh, and I reached down and gently squeezed her toes. She set her book aside, next to the flowers on the end table, and crawled to my end of the couch. We melted down onto the sofa until we were prone. She kissed my neck. Over her shoulder, I stared at the vase of roses. I knew them for what they were. gilt flowers. Margie pushed herself up onto her elbow. Rob, what's wrong? It took me a moment to realize that I had been laying there, staring at the flowers and thinking about the woman in the photo. How many minutes had passed? An infomercial had replaced the terror update on the television. I felt my face burn. You've been distant. Like you're not even here. Her brow creased at the corners and her mouth dropped. With both hands, I pulled her face towards mine. I kissed her on the forehead, then wrapped her in my arms and held her tightly. She rested her head on my chest. Her shoulders shuddered. Are you sick? I needed to tell her, but I couldn't find the words. I love you, I said, and stroked her hair. She rolled her face into the crook of my neck. I could feel her wet cheeks against my skin. Almost three weeks after finding the picture, I hired a private detective. We met on a cold Saturday afternoon at a small Italian deli off Main Street. Stephen Jones was as nondescript as his name implied. He looked more a ninth-grade science teacher than a private eye. I collapsed in the stool next to him and declined to order. After the waitress had retreated, I slid him a photocopy of the picture and a retainer check. Jones studied the picture for a full minute. Looks like you. I think it is. Don't ask. Find out everything you can about both of them. The next Friday, I met Margie at Cafe Coffee. The small cafe had a quality selection of caffeinated drinks in a soft, warm ambiance. Julian and Diana usually joined us for our weekend celebration, but both had begged off this week. I sensed that both had felt the increasing tension between Margie and me. We sat in plush chairs away from the door, which seemed to let in more shocks of winter air than it did people. Margie tried to start some small talk, but I was unable to keep up my side of the conversation, leading to an awkward silence that stretched out for several minutes. "'Rob, you're starting to scare me. "'If something is wrong, you can tell me.' "'Furrows formed in Marjorie's brow "'and small wrinkles creased the corner of her eyes and mouth. "'The past few weeks had not been kind to her. "'I had not been kind to her. "'I shifted into my chair. "'The café suddenly felt twenty degrees hotter. "'I owed her an explanation, but could I tell her the truth? "'I went to see a doctor a few weeks ago. "'Her body tensed. "'Her knuckles squeezed the white on her mug. "'He didn't find anything. "'She exhaled loudly.' But I am having problems with my memories. I have these holes. I can't remember things. Lots of things, like pieces of me, are falling off into the snow and I can't find them. I raised my hand to stop her from coming to me. But that's not the worst of it. I dug into my pocket and pulled out the worn photo. I handed it to her. The photo trembled in Margie's hand. Her voice was thready. Who is she? I don't know. You don't know? I looked at my hands. They were shaking. The memory holes are so calculated, it's like they were planned, like somebody did this to me. I know it sounds crazy. Maybe I am crazy. I don't know that woman, and it scares me. She moved towards me. I jumped up from my chair and stumbled away from her as if I was contagious. I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't know if I'm forgetting things or if they never existed. Rob, let me help you. How can you help me? She stopped approaching and stood with her arms hanging at her sides. The photo of me and the mystery woman hung loosely between the slender fingers of her left hand. Her engagement ring looked dull and black in the diffused light. I realized that the cafe had gone quiet. The staff watched us from behind the counter. I took a deep breath, For the first time in a long time my hands had stopped shaking. I need some time. Please give me time. Margie put the photo on the table near my tea mug. I could see the tension in her arms and shoulder. Okay, Rob, but I'm here when you need me. When I said yes, I meant it to be forever. She pulled on her coat, pausing to wipe her nose and eyes. She hesitated as if she was going to say something, then wrapped her scarf around her neck. Just a little more time, that's all I'll need. She nodded and then left in a burst of winter air. I crumpled the photo, but stopped short of throwing it into the trash. Reluctantly, I smoothed it out and stared at the two people. Who are you? I fished my cell phone out of my coat pocket. Jones answered after a single ring, and we arranged to meet in 30 minutes at a nearby 24-7 diner. Jones sipped a cup of tea at a booth away from the door. I slid into the seat across from him and ordered a black coffee. The heavy white ceramic mug felt good in my hands. Week's not a long time, Jones said after the waitress had left. But I got some results for you, Mr. Williams. He placed the folder on the table. Information wasn't easy to come by. I produced a check for our agreed-upon amount and slid it to him. He passed me the folder in exchange. That guy, your twin or something? Inside the folder, photocopies of two Massachusetts driver's licenses sat atop a thin stack of papers. One had a picture that was unmistakably me, but from how I looked ten years ago. The name along the left-hand side read Daniel Taylor, The other license belonged to Amanda Taylor, the dark-haired woman. Had a hard time with those. Seems both were removed from the system about six years ago. Don't know who did it or why. Fortunately, I know a guy who does computer backups for Mass DMV. He found them on one of the old tapes in his basement. Don't ask. He tapped the photocopy. They're married, but no marriage certificate that I could find. He flipped aside the licenses and spread out the next three sheets. Each contained two photos of an empty lot in an old neighborhood. The address on the license, he said. Electrical file burned the place down about seven years ago. Off the record, talk of arson. But as far as I can tell, no investigation was ever launched past the original determination. Daniel, Amanda, and a baby girl were killed. Couldn't find an obit, though. Names too common to dig up anything else in just a week. Did find one thing, however, strictly by chance, mind you, while I was researching the local papers. At the bottom of the stack was an article about the Boston Herald dated nearly eight years ago. The article was about Frank Dorian. My eyebrows popped up. What does this have to do with anything? Jones pointed to the accompanying picture of Dorian standing outside the Boston Federal Courthouse surrounded by men in suits. Can't be certain, but that sure looks like you standing behind Frank Dorian. An hour later, I barreled down the New York State Thruway towards Boston. As the mileage markers counted down, the knot in my stomach twisted tighter. Near Springfield, I finished the last of the antacids I had purchased outside of Syracuse. A mile before my off-ramp, I pulled onto the turnpike shoulder, hyperventilating. After several minutes of breathing into my hands as if they were a paper bag, I forced myself onward. The Washington Street exit dropped into a quiet residential neighborhood filled with historic colonial-style homes. Old maples and oaks lined the narrow streets. Their bare branches offered little resistance to the early morning light. The empty lot on Prospect Street was overgrown with brittle weeds. Leafless hedges surrounded it on three sides. It looked just like the photographs Jones had given me. I'm not sure what I expected. Maybe I was hoping for a spark, some memory. I parked the car across the street and walked south along Prospect, hoping the neighborhood might trigger something. But nothing about this place felt like home. With some surprise, I found that I walked around the block and was back at my car. My face was raw from the cold, and I slumped against the driver's side door, exhausted. The house next to the empty lot had a light on. I had come so far. I had nothing to lose. I knocked on the door. An old woman answered. She hid behind her chain door, looking at me through the crack. I'm sorry to disturb you so early. I smiled, hoping that I looked better than I felt. Might I talk to you for a moment? I'm not interested in your literature. The door began to close. Wait, I'm not selling anything. I need to ask you about the house next door. She must have heard something in my voice, because the crack widened a little. Are you one of those reporters? What with the appeal and all, they've been snooping around recently. I'm sorry? Her eyebrows pushed together. She looked me up and down a second time. It's cold out. Come inside. I'll make you some cocoa. She mixed the cocoa from scratch with baker's chocolate, sugar, and whole milk with a splash of heavy cream. She set the mug in front of me and sat down on the opposite side of the small table. Out the kitchen window, I could see the empty lot through the leafless hedge. You remind me of him, she said. The man who used to live next door. When he didn't say anything, she continued. He and his wife were such nice people. Their daughter. Oh, what a cutie. She smiled as if the memory were a chocolate truffle. What happened? A place burned down. Oh, seven, eight years ago. Right after Frank Doran went up for trial. You know. Frank Dorian. The cold radiating from the window glass sleeped through my shirt sleeve. I shivered. People say Dan, that was a man next door, was the one of his go-to men, but I don't believe it. She shook her head. They said it was an electrical file. Lots of folk around here think Frank Dorian was behind it. If he was, then he deserved what he gets. What's your interest in this? I hadn't thought that far ahead, so I sipped the cocoa. This really hits the spot. I smiled at her. Her eyes appraised me, the warmth fading out of them. I was an old friend of Dan's from way back, I said. I wasn't able to make the funeral for personal reasons, so I wanted to stop by and pay my respects. I live out in California. Her eyes softened again. I made up several stories about California. Nonsense stuff based on TV shows I'd seen. I had never been there, at least not that I remembered. I finished the hot chocolate and she collected my mug. Thank you for the cocoa, but I need to be going. On the porch I hesitated. Were they happy? Did they love each other? She placed a frail-looking hand on my arm. Her squeeze was barely perceptible through my coat sleeve. They were very happy and very in love. If I had driven straight through, I would have gotten home before dark, but I needed to make another stop. At Albany, I turned south towards New York City. A few hours later, I cruised the streets of Poughkeepsie, hoping that something would trigger my memory. Things looked vaguely familiar, but I just as easily could have seen them on the web as with my own eyes. While I couldn't remember my parents' house number, I did know the street. I entered Oak Street into my onboard g P S and came up with one in Poughkeepsie. I drove to it, a small dead end street with just a few houses. Nothing familiar. I tried again, using town names around Poughkeepsie. I checked out three more possibilities with similar results. I even got out at one place and walked around, hoping to shake something loose. I left after I noticed a woman watching me out of her front window. I eventually got another GPS hit, this time about 30 miles north near Rhineneck. I followed the GPS synthetic voice directions and arrived late in the afternoon. The second I turned onto Oak Street, I got a strange tingle. I jammed on the brakes, stopping in the middle of the road. The SUV behind me laid on its horn. After I failed to move, it went around me and disappeared up a side street. The open field to my right was the place where I had attended the summer carnival every year until I left home. My memory of being lost as a toddler came back to me. At the time it seemed like hours, but I'm sure it was only minutes before my mother had found me in front of the cotton candy booth, hugging the small bear that my father had won at the ring toss. In a rush she picked me up and held me. I clung to her neck and we cried into each other's shoulder. I knew I was saved. I inched along the road looking at all of the houses. They were old homes. Most looked like they had been built around the middle of the twentieth century. They were packed into narrow lots with faded wooden fences between them and poached stamped front lawns with brown grass peeking through a dusting of snow. I stopped before a weathered Cape Cods. My arms and legs had gone numb. I realized with a start that I was holding my breath. Memories rushed back to me. The dormer window on the right was my old bedroom. I had played hopscotch right there on the front walk. The storm door still had a dent in it where I had hit it with a baseball when I was seven. I remembered lying to my dad about it and getting punished worse for lying than for damaging the door. I got out of the car and stood in the cold, staring at the fading blue-gray siding and tar shingle roof. I pulled my coat tightly about me, trying to hold in the heat of the car. I walked up the driveway and looked down the side of the house. A large willow tree towered over the top of a single-car garage around back. I had broken my arm falling out of that tree when I was ten. On the edge of the driveway, just a pace from where I stood, I had kissed Amy. I couldn't remember her last name, but remembered her blonde hair, the smell of her makeup and the way her small breasts rubbed against my chest when we kissed. I was thirteen. Can I help you? An old woman peeked out the storm door. Mom? She was much older than a woman from my memories, but I had little doubt it was her. I took a hesitant step. She shied back, pulling the storm door closed. Mom? You must have me confused with someone else. I stood at the bottom of the front stoop, My name is Robert Williams. I grew up here. When I was ten, I broke... Her face went ashen. My son is dead. She slammed the inside door. I leaped onto the stoop in a single stride and knocked on the door. I rang the bell. Please, I need answers. Go away or I'll call the police. Her voice was muffled. After a few minutes of trying, I gave up and went back to my car and sat watching the house. I didn't care if she called the police. Everything I saw now triggered memories from my childhood. Our dog, Boots. An old faded green Ford Taurus parked in the driveway. The snow fort I had built with Cody and Andy after the blizzard of 1996. Clear and powerful, the memories came back so fast that I couldn't analyze them for incongruities. Lighting off M-80s in the backyard. Dad pushing me on the rope swing when I was six. The fight with my mother after my father had died. I started to cry. I sat there for several hours. At some point I fell asleep slumped over the steering wheel. I was startled awake by the woman who I had recognized as my mother tapping on the driver's side window. The sun had settled behind the rooftops. It was getting dark. She frowned. Come inside. It's cold out here. I followed her into a cramped living room. The furniture was old and familiar. I had spilled a glass of grape juice on the chair near the fireplace when I was in high school. I could see the edge of a faded stain sticking out from beneath a crocheted maroon throw. Mirrored curio boxes filled with small humble statues lined the walls. Lamps with frilly shades provided a warm glow. The house smelled like beef stew and homemade biscuits. It smelled like home. On the glass-topped coffee table were half a dozen thick, leather-bound albums and piles of loose photographs. She motioned for me to sit down. They told me this couldn't happen, she said after a long silence. She dabbed at her red and swollen eyes with a handkerchief, the one with a pink rose embroidered on the corner. I remembered it was from Dad's funeral. She picked up a framed photograph from the pile on the table and handed it to me. It was a picture of a young Marine looking sharp in his uniform. His face, stern, tough, was a carbon copy of every Marine photograph I had ever seen. But the eyes were unmistakable. They were the same as hers. That is Robert Allen Williams, my son. We had such a fight when he joined the Marines out of college. In my anger, I told him I didn't care if he went out and got himself killed. We never talked again. Six months later, he was killed in Iraq. I stared at the picture, my knuckles turning white. I wanted his life to mean something, so when the men of the Justice Department asked me to donate Robert's memories, I agreed. His memories would allow a witness against a dangerous terrorist to have a normal life. They said it was the greatest thing I could do for Robert. They told me they'd harness the memories from those that were still viable and select from those so that the recipient. so that you wouldn't be able to find me, but would be able to live your new life. My wife and daughter i said slowly i don't know mr i don't either i handed her back the photo i'm sorry i shouldn't have come she put a hand on my arm to stop me from rising please stay i want you to stay at least have dinner it's it's beef stew robert's favorite i know she served the stew in fine china bowls as if i were a special guest it tasted exactly how i remembered Throughout the meal, we talked about the past. I told her everything I could about Robert Williams. All of my, or was it his, secrets. She filled in my memory gaps whenever I asked. While I washed the dishes and she wiped and put them away, I told her about Margie and my life and how I had fucked up everything. She paused in her drying. She looked tired, but in her eyes, I saw her love for her son. Robert was always a resourceful child. I'm sure you'll find a way to make her understand. I have to. You will. It was after nine when we finished the dishes. Reluctantly, I told her I had to go. Margie is waiting for me. I stopped on the porch, wanting to give her my address and telephone number, but I knew it wasn't the right time. I suspected it would never be the right time. I sensed she felt the same way. I know you and Robert didn't part well. I have good memories of you. I don't think he died hating. He loved you very much. Thank you, she said, and quietly closed the door. I stood on the porch for a long time. Eventually the light bleeding through the living room curtains went off and I stood in darkness. I knew enough now that I could find out who I really had been. But did I want to? What if I learned that I was party to the crimes that Frank Dorian had committed and I had only turned on him to save myself? What if I was responsible for the deaths of thousands of people, including those sons and daughters like Robert Williams? But what if I wasn't? Slowly the moon rose over the houses and the darkness retreated. What if my wife and daughter were also hiding, and the fire was our way to shed our past lives? Did I want to know that, and realize that they would no longer know who I was? That thought wasn't as painful to me as I thought it should be, but that was because I was no longer Daniel Taylor. The memories of Robert Allen Williams, no matter how flawed and painful, were my memories now. They were, I was certain, no less painful than any other man's memories. But they were mine. In the
0: classic Doctor Who episode, The Five Doctors, the fifth doctor, and if I may be allowed a geek fan moment here, my favorite doctor, played by Peter Davidson, says that a man is the sum of his memories, which is easy to forget, although it seems axiomatic. We cannot know that which we have not learned, and we have not learned that which we do not remember. Each of us is collectively defined by our individual history, our experiences, our desires, our knowledge. It is the memory of these things which defines who we are and who we have been. This is, I think, why we find diseases such as Alzheimer's so frightening, take away our memories, and what's left? Perhaps nothing. But is that true? You see, there's a piece missing there. While our memories certainly define who we were yesterday, And they explain who we are today. They do not say who we will be tomorrow. That choice is left to us. And just because we may remember making one choice, we can always, always make another choice. Right now, I will choose to ask you for money. Please visit www.ndstories to leave a comment and a donation. Every single cent goes to pay our authors. Who I am certain will appreciate. And remember your generosity. Nil Desperandum is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non Commercial No Derivatives license. Editor and publisher is Jim Phillips. Audio production in cooperation with the Bear Crawling Nation. Engineer Hugh Morrison and Executive Producer Charles McFall.